0: listening to dave's daredevil podcast episode 38 in which a massive cliffhanger completely deflates Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the show covering Marvel's man without fear, Daredevil. I am the fan without fear, J. David Weider, but you, since you're my friends, can call me Dave. This week, we continue to cover the Frank Miller run on Daredevil with issue number 180. So we're only one issue shy of this big, big event that maybe you've heard of. But that's next week's show. Issue 180 hit stands the same month as Spectacular Spider-Man number 64. Now, why is that important? Well, Spectacular Spider-Man number 64 debuted a pair of characters known as Cloak and Dagger. I'm a bit of a Cloak and Dagger fan, and I even wanted to do a podcast miniseries on this very feed covering some of their early appearances. Alas, currently that is not on the agenda. But I really think they're such a great set of characters, and they really would make a great conversation piece, because they're so ambiguous. Sure, they were brought in to be villains, but... They had great motivation. You understood where they were coming from because they were manipulated youth. And that went on to be a set of characters that kind of caught on a life of their own. And I love the way Bill Mantlo came to it, that he was kind of frustrated with his run. And on a visit to Ellis Island, he had this epiphany. And the next thing you know, poof, Spectacular Spider-Man number 64. Now, I mentioned a name you may have noticed, that the fact that they were created by Bill Mantlo... Now, his name has been on a quite a few lips lately, especially this past summer, thanks to creating Rocket Raccoon, who was, of course, in this little indie film called Guardians of the Galaxy. Matlow sadly suffered from a brain injury because of a hit-and-run accident, and it's left him fairly unable to function, at least normally, in his day-to-day life. So he is actually confined to a home currently. Matlow was really quite a prolific writer who penned a lot of great Spider-Man, Hulk, Rom, and Micronauts comics before moving on to a career in law and then, of course, the tragic accident. So while I'm talking about his characters and about him, I just want to point out, if you enjoyed Rocket Raccoon and Guardians of the Galaxy or if you're a Cloak & Dagger fan, please consider donating to Matlow's continuing Healthcare on Greg Pack's website, GregPack.com. Please think about showing your thanks for some great characters, some great comics. But I definitely wanted to make sure that he was mentioned, but Cloak & Dagger came from Spider-Man's neck of the woods, but they always seemed to me to be in the same vein as Daredevil, or at least occupying the same space. Sure, they were ambiguous in terms of their hero-villain standing, where Daredevil really isn't, because they sit perched right in the middle of that fence, but in a lot of ways, so does Matt. But unlike Matt, these characters were able to explore that ambiguity and explore some very heavy themes that were really socially coming into their own in the 80s, that being drug abuse, human trafficking, At some point, I may do that Branch Out-style episode on them, but that would be down the road. I definitely wanted to mention Cloak & Dagger and Bill Mantlo because, well, how often do I get to talk about them? But this is not a Cloak & Dagger podcast. In the here and now, we actually have an issue of Daredevil to cover. So to catch us up, while continuing to pursue the corrupt mayoral candidate Randolph Cherry, Ben Urich has run afoul of the Kingpin and his assassin, Electra. Daredevil, aiding Yurik as Matt Murdock in the legal world and Daredevil in the investigation, walked right into a trap set for Yurik. And the trap was sprung by none other than Elektra, who managed to bury Daredevil beneath a pile of bricks as he suffered from a wound in a bear trap. Yurik, meanwhile, fell victim to one of Elektra's psi. And that was how Last Issue ended, with this huge, wonderful cliffhanger. So right after this, we're going to pick it up and find out exactly what occurred. So stay with me for Daredevil number 180 right after this podcast promo.
1: Hello, podcast listener. My name is Russell Bragg, and I host a podcast called The DC Comics Presents Show. Every episode, I talk about the DC Comics Presents comic starring Superman. I will be detailing all 97 issues, plus the four annuals. I will be spotlighting the DC character that Superman teams up with, plus I will be looking at the comic spinner rack to see what other comic books were on sale. So join me, Russell Bragg, for each exciting episode of the DC Comics Presents Show. Please go to the show's website at www.dccpshow.com for more information. That's D-C-C-P-S-H-O-W.
0: Alright, we are back, and again, that is the DC Comics Presents show, hosted by Russell Bragg. Definitely go check that out. Well, after you're done listening to this, please. I mean, to just leave now would be rude. But when you're done, go check out Russell's show. Our issue this week is Daredevil number 180, cover dated March 1982. The cover shows Daredevil beset upon by groups of hands, ripping at his costume against a black background. It is, to use a pun, gripping. It's claustrophobic, it's terrifying... It's every person's nightmare. Maybe just my nightmare. I can't be sure. And it really, yes, tells us a little bit from the story, but intrigues us more than it tells us, which is good work for a cover. The story within is The Damned, written and penciled by Frank Miller with inks and colors by Klaus Janssen, letters by Joseph Rosen. And if you're wanting to follow along, it is reprinted in the Daredevil Gang War trade paperback, Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 2 trade paperback, and The Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janson Omnibus Hardcover. Beginning the story, deep beneath the streets of New York, a corpulent blob of a man who fancies himself a king addresses his subjects. The pale crowd with open sores on their skin listen as he chooses a new queen from the crowd, a dark-haired woman. She's wearing a wedding ring, which the king claims as his own, just as he claims the woman, body and soul. Meanwhile, above the streets, an injured Daredevil busts up Turk and Grotto. Turk thinks the fact that Daredevil is on a crutch following last issue's climax makes the man without fear an easy mark. Wrong. Daredevil actually uses the crutch as a weapon, beating up our humble thugs. At the same time, Ben Yurik has recovered from his stab wound and has given up the pursuit of Randolph Cherry for his health. Still he develops the photos he took of Cherry and Kingpin meeting at an Italian diner, but this time he takes a second look at the bag lady that was chased away, and Ben is shocked see the face of the believed dead Vanessa Fisk. All right, let's stop there for a moment. Let me start here, and I don't want to sound shallow. If I do, please forgive me. Certainly not my intent. But when it comes to this character, the king... All I can say is, ew. He looks like somebody who just smells like Vienna sausages. Rolls upon rolls and the skin is white. It looks like it's dripping with goo. So maybe I'm shallow, but uh, ew. And you know, you gotta give kudos to the sleight of hand that Frank Miller put on the table. Until last issue, I hadn't given Vanessa any second thought since she died. I knew she came back. I knew how this story played out. And yet, once she was off the table out of sight out of mind now take that in real time as the issues were coming out we're dealing with months and months so clearly the readers completely forgot about her and moved on well done so now that that nice bit is out of the way i'm going to have to call bullshit complete and utter horse see last issue's cliffhanger was above board it was great it was gripping it had you salivating for the next issue but part of a good cliffhanger is making sure it pays off sure you can have a cop-out That's fine, because it's the buildup that matters, but you need to have some sort of connective tissue, and we don't. Daredevil's on the street, he's on a crutch, he has a cast on, Yurik is alive, but we don't have any idea how. Nobody on the side of law and order knew where they were. Daredevil was likely unconscious, Ben Yurik was definitely unconscious. Did Electra call the paramedics? Did witnesses see any of this? We don't know, and we really don't get the payoff that we should for a great cliffhanger. It really kind of takes the air out of the balloon a bit. Now, having said that, and I'm going to continue to say that, I'm going to come back to this. The scene itself of Daredevil with Turk and Grotto, it's kind of funny because Turk considers cutting the kingpin out, but then comes to his senses when he realizes, hey, it's the f***ing kingpin. And like Bullseye, Daredevil can turn anything into a weapon, even his crutch. It's kind of a theme for the character. Blindness is considered a handicap, but he turns it into a power. So Matt is really good at making lemonade out of lemons. But once again, I have to come back to it. It's a theme. How did they get out? It drives me crazy when I look at Ben and he's like, yeah, I was on a ventilator. Why would Elektra... A paid, efficient, trained assassin. Somebody who is accomplished at it. Somebody who killed a man in a movie theater silently and walked out. How would Electra not make sure Yurik was dead? Daredevil, I can see. For one thing, he's Matt. He means something to her, even if she won't admit it. Secondly, he was not the target. Daredevil was just there. He was collateral damage. He's a respected enemy by both Kingpin and Elektra's standards. But Yurik... Yurik was a thorn in their side. Yurik was the target. Not only that, he can identify her. He could connect her to the murder in the movie theater. Why would she leave him alive? You're telling me she threw the sy. Remember, she threw it. It stabbed through him, which means she had to go retrieve the sigh from his body. She would have seen what damage was done. This is not something where she wants the victim to suffer out of uh, sending a message. Not that kind of killing. She was out to simply kill him, period. It didn't have to be pretty. It just had to be dead. So no, I can't buy it. And again, we don't have any indication of exactly what happened after that. Great cliffhanger doesn't connect. It's kind of like Evil Knievel doing a jump. The jump itself is great. It's extraordinary. It's exciting. But if he doesn't land, then he's just flying. And that suddenly leaps out of the realm of logic and out of the realm of reality. You have to see Evil Knievel hit the other side of that ramp. But all of that is really frustrating and yet we have Vanessa. And finally, the fact that she's alive after so long comes into play at last. So despite a completely botched cliffhanger resolution, we do have something playing in the good long game. Does that mean I forgive Miller for this? I don't know. That remains to be seen. It depends on how the rest of the story plays out. So let's take a look at the next leg. Ben and Daredevil take a cab back to the train tunnel where Ben saw Vanessa and Daredevil notes that they are being watched as they move deeper and deeper into the darkness. The trail leads to an open pipe leading straight down and Daredevil sends Ben home while he checks it out. As soon as Daredevil hops down the pipe, Ben is grabbed by a multitude of sore covered hands and is dragged into the darkness. There is a brief interlude where Foggy and Becky lament that the Cherry Case has been, well, killed. It's hit a dead end, which allows the mayoral candidate to proceed into winning the election. Daredevil, meanwhile, finds a homeless woman whose leg was taken by "quote unquote, a monster that she says ate it off. Daredevil gives her his crutch and continues down the underground corridor. But the man without fear doesn't get far before he, too, is overcome by hands grabbing him from everywhere in the darkness. Daredevil is rendered unconscious and is taken away by shadowy bodies. Okay, so let's stop there again. Sometimes, you know, superheroes have to take a cab. But when you do, apparently you don't pay a fare. Sorry, I feel bad for the cabbie. I know this is exciting because, you know, there's no Daredevil mobile. It's kind of nice to have a celebrity, but I'm sorry, if George Clooney hops into a cab, yeah, that's great. But you know what? You're on the job. You should probably take George Clooney's money. He's got plenty of it. And I do love the note that when they enter this tunnel, it's the same as the last issue. The lighting is a little bit different, but the details are there. So it doesn't look like it was traced over or reproduced. It looks like it's just a nice photo reference art. And this leads me to something interesting. I had this thought that stemmed from last issue and extends to here. And it pertains to this train tunnel. Now, originally, I thought it to be an abandoned tunnel. I described it as such. However, looking closer at last issue, I realized that no, no, this begins at an active subway station. And then the tracks and the tunnel stem off of that station. So Vanessa hopped off the platform and went down the tunnel itself, which led off to all these sewers. Now, first of all, I looked at the plausibility of this tunnel. And sure, it has legs. There are many urban exploration videos that show tunnels of this type and this depth, which stem off of subway stations. I fact-checked it. The New York Underground is extensive, and it's really fascinating. But the question became, which station would this be? To start with, Yurik first spotted Vanessa outside of a restaurant, which was unnamed, in New York's Little Italy. So, I needed that waypoint, just for logic. Where did this start? What would be the nearest subway station? And to do that, I had to educate myself on Little Italy in New York. It's actually a small area, about three blocks, centered around Mulberry Street in Manhattan. Mulberry Street is a one-way street. I note that because I thought it would help me establish which restaurant Fisk met Cherry at. Because perhaps Miller is using real geography like he did with Coney Island, or the manhole cover that led into Fisk's lair. I thought this would be pretty simple, since the shot in the last issue showed Fisk getting out of the car, driver's side facing the restaurant, and a fire hydrant in front of the restaurant itself. And then Yurik would be across the street in a small alley. Three blocks. One side of the road to focus on, with an alley across from it. Should be simple, I said, so I fired up Google Maps. And I started from where I placed Fisk Tower, which was in the 400 block of 5th Avenue. And I mapped essentially a route, roughly to the center of Little Italy, which would be about a 16-minute commute not accounting for traffic. Here's the problem. There really aren't any alleys in Little Italy. The buildings are pretty much attached to one another, and this is old architecture. So even if we're accounting for passage of time, construction and deconstruction, It doesn't match up. I even used the visual cues. The one side of the street, the fire hydrant, and an obscured sign that seemed to read S.I.O. Nothing matched. So, I had to figure a reasonable waypoint, because it looks like Miller just went generic on this. And I just stuck with that center of the intersection of Mulberry and Grand, fairly close to what would be approximate center of Little Italy. So, from there, we know that the subway entrance is a short walk, And luckily, Google Maps shows the subway stations. Looking at it, I lean towards a station on nearby Grand Street, mainly because the line runs under the East River into Brooklyn. Why does that matter? I'm going to explain that in the next segment. So earmark that. Coming back to the story a little bit, Daredevil senses that they're being watched. And then he sends Ben on his merry way, going back through the tunnel unprotected. Surely nothing bad could come of this. Come on. Ben also uses Matt's name. Now, sure, it's whispered. But maybe that's why Matt ditched Ben. Because Ben can't keep his mouth shut, apparently. Hey, Ben, we're being watched. Oh, really, Matt Murdoch? Dodson? Tell me more.
1: Dodson, we've got Dodson
0: here! Come on, Ben, use a little common sense. You're not Heather. Now, sure, we have this interlude, and it tracks the Cherry story. But it also causes the story to stumble because we're at this moment of great suspense. With Daredevil in the tunnel. With Ben being grabbed. It's. Logically, the natural breaking point, but maybe, maybe it feels like it's grinding the gears a bit to me. And then we have this really great scene of Matt giving the crutches to this woman, and it just shows that Matt is full of heart. He is a compassionate man. I've said it before. And Matt knows what it's like to suddenly be handicapped or changed irrevocably. So he sacrifices this and goes on, darn right hobbling. It's very, very heartening to me. I like that scene a lot. Nestled in a lot of what's going on, we still get the fact that Daredevil and Matt Murdock are the same guy, and they're both very heartfelt men. But, Daredevil's grabbed, so now Daredevil is in a pickle. I'm sure at the height of nail-biting climax, we won't interrupt a story, hmm? The Kingpin watches the news as Cherry's victory is assured, and Kingpin tells his chief assassin, Electra, that he will retain her services going forward. Daredevil and Yurik, however, have been captured by the king, who has Vanessa as his queen. Did you put that together? Hornhead and Ben are tied up over a deep pool of water. One of the king's subjects unwillingly serves as an example of the fate our heroes face, as she is kicked into the pool, and only blood comes back up. Daredevil and Ben are dunked into the pool where a giant alligator greets them. Daredevil manages to undo the bonds and stops the alligator from munching on Ben, who surfaces. Daredevil takes just a little bit of time to return to the surface, but when he does, he takes on the king. And I don't mean Elvis. While the king has size, he has strength, Daredevil has stamina and cunning, and he feigns injury and then beats down the king. And the homeless underworld proclaims Daredevil as their king, and Vanessa herself offers Daredevil her wedding ring. Daredevil, in turn, takes the ring to Fisk, who simply asks, What do you want? And Daredevil simply answers, Cherry. So the book ends with Cherry stepping away from the mayorship, and admitting to mob ties. The good guys win. And the kingpin accepts his defeat, but he's got to have a little bit of retribution. So he assigns Electra her next target, Foggy Nelson. All right, so again... The subplots must be tracked and checked in on. I get that. This should be a natural cut point, but it just feels so superfluous. And I don't know why. Again, it's just an example of grinding the gears. And why does it bother me so much? I have no idea. Again, natural cut point. I've got no logic for it, folks. It's just the way it read. And the king. I talked about him being physically disgusting, but he is rotted to the core. He is pestilence in human form. The question is, how did these homeless of New York fall in with him? What power does he have? Sure, he has the strength, but New York's a big place. Why would you remain there? And I guess the question would be better answered looking at what is with the sores and the pale skin. I get if you're underground, sure, you're going to be pale. But the sores? Are there mosquitoes in the sewers? And I say that half joking and half serious. Are there a lot of lice? Fleas? We don't know. We don't know the story of these people and how this fiefdom came to be beneath the streets of New York. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. How much do we need to know other than what we're given? It's a group of homeless people who are taken hostage essentially by a big bad bully. And I mentioned placing the subway that Daredevil and Ben use, as well as Vanessa last issue, being a station in Grand Street. I hope you earmarked that, because here is why. The reason for this is that the line runs under the East River, This would allow water to flow in abundance to this location through small channels beneath, etc. It would allow a vantage point to access both islands as well. Now supposing the sewer alligator were real, and there's never been a confirmed report of one. Let me be clear on that. Alligators in the New York sewers have never, ever been confirmed. However, they've never been denied either, and stranger things have happened, but... Here's why that's not completely unrealistic. If the alligator migrated, somehow, some way, it could have migrated from the nearby river into this area and into that pool that feeds from the river. It could be blocked off in this area because the walls look hard to climb. So it's abundantly available water, probably through the decline of the walls of the tunnel. But again, both islands. It makes sense. To some extent, that would go under the East River. There would be a channel to gather and hunt food and articles of clothing from two different locations. Although you wouldn't pay me enough to go walking through a tunnel that runs underneath the East River. However, Daredevil's rage at the killing of one of the king's subjects is palpable. This is a bully on a huge scale. It's everything that Matt despises. And the image of this woman, her scream, which he doesn't see because A, she's underwater, and B, he's blind. But the image that this projects is burned into his mind, her fearful scream. And as such, it's burned into our mind a little bit. The horror that she must be feeling, the inability to scream out because she's underwater and being probably chewed to death. I mentioned she's underwater. The pool is deeper than it looks. And the alligator is bigger than you would think. The quiet of the water is told visually with the expanse of space, which is an odd effect. When they drop into this small opening of the pool, it opens up. There are no sound effects, just bubbles. And it feels a little bit like an agoraphobic nightmare. Because there's this great space, huge alligator, and nowhere to hide. It's an open space space which makes Daredevil and Ben a very easily tracked target. And I'm sorry, I don't know what could make this comic more worth your money than Daredevil versus an alligator. An alligator, he could totally be on Swamp People. I mean, they would fill those tags quick. He and Troy could get out on the boat, and they don't even need to waste bullets. Get thee to Louisiana for alligator season Daredevil. But of course, as all things in comics must, this comes down to a brawl. And this brawl does not disappoint. When the king hits Daredevil, you feel it. It's a huge concussive force. And the thing is, he puts no effort into the swing. The king isn't doing a golf swing. He isn't doing a batter stance. He's basically using a fly swatter and knocking the crap out of Daredevil. And the thing I realize about the king is, yeah, he's a big guy. He's a strong bully. He's a lot like Wilson Fisk in a more unfiltered rendition. He's the mirror mirror universe Wilson Fisk. They're both evil because Fisk is evil head to toe. But this is Fisk in a version with no money, with no prestige, completely without any limitations or, by that matter, any charm, any real ambition. The Kingpin likes to manipulate. He likes to play the odds in his own favor and control his environment. For him it's a search for power, so it is with the king. But the king, instead of being shrewd, instead of being smart, instead of playing every chip on the table, the king simply relies on brute force, completely unfiltered and completely without focus or any humanity. For as evil as the kingpin is, there are things like Vanessa that keep him grounded, his business that keeps him structured, his army which gives him reach. And he has enemies. And the enemies create a drive to crush them. The king, by contrast, has none of that. He has simply the broken people. He's as low rent a kingpin as you can get. And that makes him wholly disgusting. For as much as we hate Fisk as a villain, there are times when we almost find him fascinating. There is a lot going on under that chrome dome. And that's what keeps us coming back to the kingpin. Luckily, the king doesn't return. This is all he's good for. He's a one-shot villain. But, at the same time, those comparisons between Fisk and the king, maybe that explains why Vanessa's shattered mind kind of accepts it. For somebody who's in such a mental state as Vanessa, it makes sense. Kind of like a small child who recognizes somebody with blonde hair like her mom and makes that association. Or a vague image in a dream that looks like somebody you kind of think you know but isn't quite that person. And as much as I hate to admit this, it's the king that probably helped keep Vanessa alive and gave her what limited anima she has in her body, in her mind. He's what kept the synapses firing. It's a disgusting relationship. It's on par with spousal abuse, and it's hard to look at. And yet, in this instance, this abuse, coming from somebody that she's tangentially familiar with kind of kept her comforted and kept her moving kind of like winding up the key on a wind-up toy it's extremely sad i'm glad daredevil was able to find her and get her out of there and he does it by outsmarting the king something he really can't do with wilson fisk because fisk tends to run one step ahead of everybody with this since we're not dealing with somebody of intelligence and of drive daredevil simply has to outsmart him and never lose grip of the advantage once he has it. Once the King moves closer and thinks Daredevil's not a threat, Daredevil starts wailing on him and doesn't let up until he's down, because he knows he can't. He's got one opening and he has to exploit it like a boxer. Hmm. Wonder where he learned that. That's right. You're basically seeing Daredevil win this fight thanks to Battle and Jack Murdoch's boxing routine. Very nicely done. Speaking of Kingpin, I love that the resolution to all of this was, hey, Kingpin, we have your balls. Please comply. And against all odds, when the chips were completely down, when the good fight was put right into the corner with no way out, here comes this shining beacon of light and Cherry is defeated. He's taken off the table and Kingpin doesn't own the mayoral office. Against all odds, thanks to this one little seed planted long ago in the book. I love when a long game comes together. And yet, even though the Kingpin admits defeat, come on guys, he has to send one final f*** you. And this time, Foggy seems an easy target. Because Kingpin can't kill Daredevil because Daredevil, well, he respects. Daredevil won fair and square. Daredevil outfoxed him by accident, but he did so. And he can't kill Matt Murdock because, well, he tried to kill Matt before and Daredevil seems a little overprotective. So he's going to take the silver medal and kill off Foggy. So what is the final verdict on Daredevil number 180? The thing that I took away from it? Crappy cliffhanger resolution. It's frustrating. And this issue seems out of place as things are ratcheting up. The Cherry storyline, as we've seen it, has this range of tones. We have the noir detective. We have some comical bits we, of course, had political intrigue like all the king's men. But now we go borderline medieval? It's a very oddly toned issue and normally wouldn't be something I like with Daredevil. But Miller allows us to go in with a nice through line, something we are familiar with. After all, we enter this medieval kingdom through a subway tunnel from a New York City street. And I like this idea. I like the symbolism of this kingdom beneath the streets, this hell beneath New York, because we get a story in which the devil goes to hell, and takes over. Of course, he leaves his subjects behind, but what are you going to do? The art is very choppy in this issue. At points, it's very glorious. At other points, it's really grainy. The backgrounds remain consistent, but the character seems to be kind of like a badly animated cartoon. Lines thicken and thin. Bodily structures change from panel to panel. Very odd, but it never really gets to a bad point. Just inconsistent. So, cherries out of the picture. The Kingpin has suffered a defeat. That can't end well. This issue primarily serves as a very good volley to wrap up some of the ongoing subplots but prep for a huge spike next week. And In seven days, we're going to see one of the most important issues of Daredevil ever put on stands. And this serves as a lead up to that. And that's how I end up seeing the issue. It had a nice plot point but at the same time, it's always going to be prologue to something huge. But That's next week. Before we go, we have one email to cover, and this week's email is from Brad Dade. His subject line is simply, Batman. Brad writes, Hi Dave, I just wanted to say how much I really enjoyed your special episode focusing on Batman and the Batman-Daredevil crossovers. I've personally never been a fan of either crossover, but I will admit, the second one featuring the nice art of Eduardo Barreto is slightly more entertaining. But, what about the line Kingpin utters? Capiche?" while lunging at Batman? Capiche? Really? For me, the 1989 Batman movie will always hold a special place for me as that is what ultimately got me into the comics. Sure, growing up, I enjoyed reruns of the 1966 Batman TV series and all the various Super Friends cartoons, but for some reason I was not even remotely interested in comic books until the summer of 89 or better known as the summer of Batmania. As you could not go anywhere without seeing the bat symbol plastered somewhere, thanks to a friend that was also new to comics, I started seeing what was going on in the books and I have never looked back. So I guess you could say this is the 75th anniversary for Batman, but it is also my 25th anniversary of collecting and reading comic books. I also turned 40 recently, so you can imagine that all of this together is leading to a lot of reflection on my part. Your closing clip of the speech Batman makes at the end of Batman the Brave and the Bold always got to me. First of all, how many cartoons these days actually have a purposely written final episode? One that reflects what the series was about and the message they wanted to say. Another thing for me was how this series really made me look at fandom and my view of it. When Batman the Brave and the Bold was first announced, I thought it was the stupidest idea ever. My Batman is serious. Yet, after hearing so many good things, I gave it more of a chance. It forced me to realize something. Batman's been around for 75 years. There are many, many different versions of Batman, with many, many different generations of fans that helped keep the fandom of the character going. As unlikely as it may be, 20 years from now, there will be some teenager saying how silly Batman the Animated Series is, even though for me that show was simply amazing. My point is... Like you say, when discussing fandom, I've learned not to judge others' enjoyment of Batman or anything else for that matter, just because their interpretation of the character may differ from my own. Sorry for the long email about Batman, especially considering technically this is not a Batman podcast, but I just wanted to say I really enjoyed your look at Batman's history and your thoughts about fandom in general. Cheers, Brad. Well, thank you very much, Brad. You know, I too enjoyed the DC offering a little bit more. Both of them were pretty substandard. And it was goofy, but the and the last act, did, it just never gelled. But the art was nice, and Catwoman's cameo, especially when drawn by Beretto, was a welcome one. Plus, I think in that one, the villain choices were a bit more well-rounded. They made more sense to these characters. Like you, I am closer to 40 than 30. So, I kind of know about this reflective nature, and that episode kind of stemmed from that as well. And I will say this, as you're going through periods of reflection comics are time capsules there are a lot of comics where i can pull it out and say hey i was here at this point these were the people in my life this was what was important this was the girl i had a crush on and daredevil 26 would be a good example going back to that you know my old reading perch at the top of the walkway stairs you know i look back at that and i think i had it figured out at that point point. and then i look at something like x-men number one from 1991 i thought i had it figured out at that point And it keeps evolving, it keeps changing, and you keep finding fragments of memories hidden in there. And it's a beautiful symbiotic relationship. And what fandom offers is not only something we love, it offers pieces of us that we leave behind. Pieces of innocence, for example, sitting at that perch, or wanting to get all covers of that X-Men. Little pieces that sometimes we forget. So if you're reflecting on fandom, if you ever think that you regret fandom... Regret the path that you took. And this doesn't go for you, Brad. I'm I'm speaking generally. I should probably have pointed that out. But if you ever regret it, look back. Look at those pieces of you you left behind. You'll find little nuggets of happiness here and there. But that's me waxing poetic. Like you, I wanted to be dismissive of Brave and the Bold. And then I accidentally caught an episode. And I realized, beyond Batman the Animated Series, this is one of the most well-thought-out Batman or should I say DC Comics properties, we've seen on the screen. It's really a great show. If you have not watched it, I cannot recommend it highly enough. A lot of fun, but there's a lot of emotion in it as well. And it's surprisingly good. And you know, even though I'm not a fan of something like The Batman or The Batman Strikes, there are phases for every character. And there are good phases and bad characters. Spider-Man has had ups and downs. Clone Saga. Hulk has definitely had ups and downs. Daredevil definitely has. And yet through it all, These are the things we love. These are the little pieces of ourselves we leave behind. It's a beautiful, beautiful relationship to be a fan. And that episode was celebrating that very idea, which seems to have caught on with you, Brad. So I appreciate that. We laugh at renditions of these characters, in some cases, from an older time. But you know what? Both Batman and Daredevil have been loved for decades by multiple generations. It's something bigger than us. So I definitely appreciate your email, Brad, allowing me to wax poetic. But I think I'm going to go ahead and come to an end of this episode before I get carried away. Uh, next week, the big one: Bullseye versus Electra. And somebody isn't walking away. That's one week from today. Until then, remember that justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark.
1: He is the one they call him M-
0: You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Or stream it on the Stitcher app, which gives you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted to dave at daredevilpodcast.com or through the website's handy contact form. The show is on Facebook. Simply search for Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And I am on Twitter as well. My username is at Dave Weter. Weter is spelled W-E-T-E-R. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists solely for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.
1: He must hide his sadness and